Hello, medieval witches and bald vampires and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host... Michael Hull. Our guest today is a writer, film critic, programmer, curator, dancer, traveler, and dog mom. Her writing has appeared at... I'm going to take a deep breath... The Washington Post, The New York Times, NBC News, NPR, RogerEbert.com, The Guardian, The Wrap, Vanity Fair, Vulture, Variety, Polygon, Cherry Picks, The Village Voice, Cosmopolitan, and The Boston Globe, among others. She's currently a senior film programmer at the Jacob Burns Film Center. Say hello to the delightful Monica Castillo. Hey, Monica. Hi, Jason and Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. And first of all, like, congratulations, because you have selected by several years the earliest year to date on our show. So tell us what year you picked and why. I wanted a challenge, and for my sins, I got one. (laughs) I picked the year 1922. Wow. Um, Yeah, a little bit of a deep cut, but kind of one that speaks a little bit to my uh, film education because I didn't formally go to film school. I just kind of got into the silence and worked Mm -hmm. my way in chronological order when I was a high schooler. Mm -hmm. So this was one of the formative years that gave me a film education. Great. Okay. So yes. So let's talk about that a little more because I do love to hear about, you know, young cinephiles and their entry points. So like you say you got into silent cinema in high school. What, what brought you there? Sort of uh, what were your initial interests and then sort of how did that lead you on the journey that you're still on? So I was very fortunate that my mom is a cinephile still Mm. very much like a good portion of our conversations about which movies we've watched lately and what she should look out for. And, Oh, I really want you to see this movie. I want you to think about what, uh, Oh, I want to hear what you think about. Mm. Um, So she had always had, you know, maybe the not usual cable movies in front (laughs) of me and my sister, Um, you know, and back when cable channels like Bravo TV used to play French films and yeah. uh, Ovation TV had their Janus movie Fridays. I would watch uh-huh. a lot of movies from the Janus collection. Of course, TCM was on regular yeah. rotation. Fun um, fact, little trivia, kids. AMC used to stand for American Movie Classics. Movie classics. You'd yep. never guess now, but yeah. <laughs> well, and funny that you mentioned AMC specifically because that was where I saw the movie Chaplin. Oh, and okay. that's how I got introduced to Charlie Chaplin. I was so in love with mm. the physical comedy and how what choices he made to, you know, make a scene extra special or how he, you know, created emotion out of, you know, no words, no dialogues, right. just movement. Yeah. Um, I we were vacationing out at Tennessee at the time. And this is when I was a high schooler. And then we ended up at some. Um, I want to say like outlet malls in Pigeon Forge and that I went to the one DVD store in the whole complex and I asked the poor clerk like what do you have of Charlie Chaplin's and they kind of looked at me like what is happening here and uh, they went to the back and they got me these two low rent copies of a couple of his shorts and they were like the stuff that had fallen into the public domain some of the intertitles hadn't even 
<laughs> yeah, some of the intertitles weren't even translated. Like right. there was one that had, I think, Russians intertitles and didn't explain <laughs> it. There was no translation. It, but, but. Yeah. You could still figure out what was going on and you could still follow it. And I was still in love. And so that became my informal film education, because once I got into Chaplin, I got into Buster Keaton. Once I got into Buster Keaton, I got into Harold Lloyd. Yeah. Once I got, you know, past the silent clowns, I wanted to see what was, you know, going on in the drama department. And then there was a 1930s and the advent of sound. And it just kept going and going and going to the present day. Wow. That is it, it is kind of amazing how many people share that journey like that's exactly mine too like yes first chaplain then you know keaton and lloyd and the rest of the and then yeah all the way in um that's remarkable all right well, i didn't realize you had the same journey too. oh yeah oh yeah big time big time you know and nice. and honestly with sound it's it you come in through comedy too like my we've talked about mm-hmm. on the show before but the marx brothers were my entry point and then you go to the marx brothers you get to wc fields and to may west and you're watching laurel and hardy and abbott and costello and then you know it it just oh wow these these old black and white movies actually are like entertaining and still have something to say and so forth so yeah yeah that's awesome all right well we're gonna hear about five really spectacular movies from the year 1922 uh but before we do mike is gonna walk us through uh what was happening in the world around i guess they weren't they were in movie palaces by now i don't have to say the world around the nickelodeon um oh it's movie palaces it's movie palaces yes uh but let's let's have a listen to what was going on in the world in 1922 uh here's how it's the news January 11th is the first successful treatment of diabetes with insulin, which my pops has needed three times a day for more than 50 years, so that is literally the only reason I'm here to read these headlines. Shout out to Fred Banting and science, baby. Let's get started. Amen. A-A-men. Yes. February 1, actor and director William Desmond Taylor is murdered in a still-unsolved mystery, which coupled with the previous year's Roscoe Arbuckle scandal prompted the addition of morals clauses to film contracts Mm -hmm. and the eventual formation of the Hayes office. There is a really good, pretty recent book about this whole Michigas called Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood by William J. Mann. And it is like... These stories are, you know, you talk about sort of getting into silence and sort of Mm -hmm. figuring them out. Like another weird thing about getting into silence through the sort of clown shows is when you start to learn about fatty and all this nonsense. Like, it's so human and it's so relatable in ways that I don't think is obvious you sort of think a yeah. hundred years ago, like everybody would like go to work and then go to church and then go home or whatever. Like that's <laughs> not what was going down. No, no, they were making trouble. They were, they, <laughs> they were, into, they were into some shit back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, a, so, that's, so Babylon was based yeah. on some, <laughs> some very, truth, very loosely on some Loose. truth. Very loose indeed. Tinseltown is. It's a gr- it's a great book. It's a great read. I mean, if you like film history or if you like true crime, like it's that nice intersection of those two uh, keen interests of, of mine, at least. Well, and I think that it's sort of in a way, 1922 is still really defined by the end of World War One. Uh, mm. And, you know, guys sort of coming back into society. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you spend a couple years with Trenchfoot. You know, you have slightly different expectations when you get back home, you know, yeah. of, of what your entertainment yeah, looks yeah, like. Yeah. And you're starting to see books. You know, you got James Joyce and all kinds of wild things going on. So it's sort of really defined by that, that like mechanized death that everybody had just gone through. It's a it's a wild yeah. year. 
the way yeah. people deal with that and also sometimes deal with it by not dealing with it. In February, yeah. there was a new pope, Pius XI, wow. who after uh, who who thereafter made his siblings book an appointment to see him and only referred to him as his holiness. Like his his siblings had to like call him his holiness. Anyway, Damn. he seemed like he didn't like Hitler that much. So mixed bag on the popes right. around here. All right, fair enough. Also in February, <laughs> President Warren G got a radio for the White House. And was immediately pissed because he found out Stern was on Sirius. Like, he was so <laughs> mad about that. Um, Mike and I had a, uh, 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 you know, President Warren G. You know, a uh, little known fact, President Warren G. referred to his cabinet as uh, the regulators. Hi-oh! Um, hey, this is, this is all comedy. my all my Warren G. Harding jokes. <laughs> the end. In March, the the U.S. built the USS Langley, the first U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. Like, how many planes did we have? Did they all fit on the one boat? <laughs> they were there, like, I where we gonna, we're running out of space for our 20 planes. Let's build a boat and put them on the... <laughs> in April, Joseph Stalin became the main mustache in the Russian Communist Party, maybe the worst mm-hmm. human being to gain power in the 20th century. Ooh, Bar's bold, pretty high. Bold, lot of competition for that. Is, yeah, is yeah. killing people through blind hatred worse than through indifference or politics? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Being human is hard, but it's made much harder with assholes like Joseph Stalin around. Yeah, this was your your least viewed BuzzFeed list, right, Mike? The uh, the, <laughs> the 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 worst humans to gain power in the 20th century that did not get a lot of clicks. <laughs> Nobody wanted to vote. It was too tiring. No, in no. May was a sort of famous dinner party where Sergei Diaghilev Diaghilev Diaghilev. I've been trying to say that name all week. Igor Stravinsky, mm. Pablo Picasso, Marcel Proust, James Joyce, Eric Satie, and Clive Bell all had dinner together. Okay. And to be honest, that sounds awful. <laughs> Picasso was like, I've read about this several times in my life. And, you know, it's like yeah. a, like an amazing moment. Picasso was the only one of those guys who was the least bit fun. And he was only fun <laughs> if you were willing to be fun on his terms. Right. Sure. No, thanks. Like Algonquin yeah. sounded better. Well, Algonquin always sounds better. I'm with you there. I was going to say New Yorker to New Yorker. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we got to root for the home team. Yes. <laughs> In June, the IRA assassinated British Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, and shit was about to go down. Little Peaky Blinders, anyone? Hey. Oh, okay. All right. Thank yeah, it's sort that. of in that universe, if you're yeah, a Peaky yeah, Blinders yeah. fan. Yeah. All right. In August, people killed the last California grizzly bear, so now they're just on a flag where they're safe. <laughs> I'm trying to silver lining this, the extinction of that bear. I, I haven't figured out another way to do it. Yep. Such and great I, news out of 1922. <laughs> <laughs> the theme of the news segments is, isn't it amazing that we continue making beautiful art? Because look at the fucking world we live in. In October, God, this is the worst example. Benito Mussolini took over Italy. Best part Ooh. of his story is the end where he gets strung up in the street like a fucking dog. There's pictures. Fuck that guy. Big hand for uh, for death. He never misses. He eventually comes for everybody. Yep. Big hand. If, if you're ever feeling bad about yourself, go look up the pictures of Benito Mussolini's last day. Your day is going much better. October 18th, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, which is the full official title. It had his name in it. That's talk about above nice. the fucking line, bro. Nice. Which the Tyler Perry later, of his day. <laughs> becomes the first movie to have a Hollywood premiere at Grauman's Egyptian Theater. Oh, in November, proud suffragette Rebecca Felton of Georgia became the first woman U.S. senator. 
Oh. So that seems good, right? She was appointed mm-hmm. and only I served. I would say that's a positive. Yeah, she yeah. was Hopefully. only she only served for one day. She was appointed. Uh, but it was considered an important symbolic women, victory for women across the, the nation. She was a big-time suffragette. Okay. Wait, they only really gave her one day? Her husband <laughs> was a senator, and then he died. And so... She she was uh, she was she was appointed for the day before the new okay. guy that got elected got sworn in. Uh, ah, yeah. uh-huh. so All that right. seems okay. relatively. Women's good. history is never easy. Yeah, she yeah. was also the last literal owner of slaves who served in the Senate and never heard about a lynching she didn't love. So well then, shit is complicated. Whoops. Here's the thing about white feminism. Um, it's always <laughs> it's always been problematic. It's always been naughty and thorny. And in December, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was formed and started wreaking fucking havoc. Uh, Some brand new humans got their marching orders in 22. Betty White and B. Arthur both. All right. Thank you for being a friend. Yeah. Robert Chef de Hotel, who was actually a track and field guy. He was just so fucking French. His name was Robert Chef de Hotel. That's That's pretty good, right? Imagine if your name was like, you know, Mikey Big Truck, you know, like that's you were so American. Your last name was Big Truck. I don't know. The chef de hotel is the thing that struck me. It's like, yeah, like my name was Mikey Big Truck and then I was a painter. Like what the? (laughs) Yes. The job is in your name. You were supposed to be a chef at a hotel. I imagine he just wanted to rebel. Yeah. There you go. At that point. That's it. Yep. You want to have cool kids listen to shitty music. Haskell Wexler uh, was born in 22, Audrey Meadows, Helen Gurley Brown, Yitzhak Rabin, Pierre Paolo Pasolini. He was was going to be fun, but not yet. He was going to be fun later. The terminally long-winded Jack Kerouac. (laughs) Remember when, like, white dudes, like, felt like they had been oppressed? I feel like he's sort of like the king of the, like, oh, no, I've really been oppressed as a white dude. Wait, you're using past tense. <laughs> oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Damn. Damn. Wait. Excellent yeah. point. Excellent yeah. point. Uh, Carl fucking Reiner, 22. All right. All right. Nice. Russ Meyer. Doris yes. Day. Carmen McRae. I'm bringing back the fucking, I'm bringing back the blunt rotation. <laughs> for Carl Reiner, Russ Meyer, Doris Day, and Carmen McRae. We haven't had a dream I'll, blunt I'll, rotation yeah. in a while, but yeah. yeah. I'll I'll pass that. All right. Kingsley Amos, Jack Klugman, Roscoe Lee Brown, Eugenie Clark, Judy Garland, Jake LaMotta. He got a good hey. movie later. Yeah, Physicist yeah, yeah. John B. Goodenough was so annoyed by his name that he won a Nobel Prize. Can you imagine <laughs> him just being like, I'm not good enough, I'm the fucking best. Uh, Ava Gardner, Blake Edwards, Jason Robards, Norman Lear, Howard Zinn, Sid Caesar, Damn. my God, Ruby Damn. D, Dorothy Dandridge, Kurt Vonnegut, nice. cartoonist Charles M. Schultz, John Elroy Sanford. Who is John Elroy Sanford? Do you remember? Hen is in the name. Red Fox, baby, the original Sanford. Oh, hell yes. (laughs) And finally, my favorite musician in all of recorded music history, Charles Mingus, was born in 1922. Job bless. Uh Sports is going to go quick because it sounds like I'm just making all this shit up. I might as well be Hufflepuffs or whatever. The Canton Bulldogs (laughs) won the American Professional Football Association Championship. Later that year, they would rename themselves the National Football League. Everybody's heard of that one. Cornell Big Red won the college football championship. Liverpool just beat Tottenham Hotspur in association football. That's the kind where they actually use their feet. See, this sounds like I'm making this shit up, but I swear. Mm-hmm. IK Sirius beat Vesteris SK to win the Bandy Championship. Have you figured out what Bandy is yet? What? No. No, you haven't no. learned what Bandy is? It's basically no. hockey They didn't with teach a ball. us that in high school. 
<laughs> it's basically hockey with a ball instead of a puck. It, it, there's a reason oh. nobody's ever heard of it. And the New York okay. baseball Giants swept the New York Yankees to win the 22 World Series. No, hang on. Is that why people like still to this day call them the New York Football Giants? Because yeah. there was a, oh my god, I just always yeah. thought that was just like everyone was imitating Howard Cosell in that like that clip that I heard. <laughs> no, it's just Cosell like, was old enough to remember before the baseball yeah. team moved to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. And the Chicago American Giants won their third consecutive Negro National League pennant. Hey, all right. Yeah, I feel like it, they they kept those leagues separate. If they could have kept like boxing separate, they would have done mm-hmm. that too because sure it wasn't working out. Joe Lynch beat Johnny Buff to take the bantamweight belt, and Bartling Sicky, and sorry, Battling Sicky beat George Carpentier to get the light heavyweight belt. These were real people with hopes and dreams. Wipe that look <laughs> off your face. The Toronto St. Pat's beat the Vancouver Millionaires to win the Stanley Cup, and finally. This is before the World Cup was invented, but a fellow by the name of Ralph Samuelson in Lake City, Minnesota, invented water skiing in 1922. So that's a small consolation. Not as good as a World Cup, but huge, huge impact in 80s comedy. Like, where would 80s comedy movies have been if it weren't for water skiing? Thank you very much. That's sports and that's headlines. Thank you, Mike. All right, Monica, you ready to do a top five? Let's go. In the pre-show conversation, we decided that the uh, the top five will be organized alphabetically, uh, A to Z, straightforward alphabetically. So, Monica, what is the first film on your top five for 1922? Kind of following a little bit of what my mm-hmm. journey into film was, um, we're going to start with Buster Keaton's Cops, which is a yes. fun little short yes. that he made back in 1922. Co-directed with Mr. Edward F. Klein. Um, This is, I think, this is such a good choice because I really think maybe the quintessential Buster short comedy. Like, of of all the two reelers, this is the one that you've seen the most clips from in, like, documentaries about movie history and silent comedy and so forth and so on. Because it's cops. It's him being chased for 20 minutes by cops. Um, Yeah. And not just any, like... Just a small group of cops. Oh. We're talking about legions, <laughs> a whole police parade yes. of cops. Yes, yes. A and comical I- amount of cops. <laughs> yes. All pursuing him uh, forcefully uh, under mistaken uh, assumptions. Buster Keaton said cab. everybody. This is what I'm getting at. <laughs> um, what do you love so much about cops in particular and about Buster as a filmmaker and comedian in general, Monica? My goodness, there's uh, quite a few things to dig into there. Um, <laughs> Cops, I, I would also rank as among one of my top go-to Buster Keaton shorts. Yeah. I mean, he's that's like a perfect like introduction to Buster. Mm-hmm. You see the level of physical comedy, the heightened risks that he would take and put mm-hmm. his body out on the line for, mm-hmm. uh, all for the sake of a good pratfall. Mm-hmm. And man, does he have some good pratfalls <laughs> there. There's still the, I think it's the image of him, you know, fleeing what looks like a horde mm-hmm. of, you know, policemen coming down a street and he just happens to grab a car just passing in front oh, of him God. Oh, God. and he gets whipped like a rag doll <laughs> yes. out of the frame. 
Yes. And it is one of those like, oh, I, I don't know that that human body's supposed to do that, but he just yeah. did it. And yeah. it's hilarious because you, you have all that context, you have everything that's going on around it. And the fact that also he plays this chaos with a straight face. Right. It's really remarkable. Right. I mean, he's not, you know, camping it up for the camera. He's not making the really big faces mm-hmm. and... You know, the style of silent comedy at that at that point was very rooted in pantomime and yep. outsized gestures because they were, you know, coming from vaudeville. They wanted to play to the back seat. Mm-hmm. Buster, and I'm sure Dana Stevens got into this in way more detail, but he was very much aware of the camera being right there and just yeah. playing right to it. Yeah. And maybe he's not even looking at it, but he knows that his body is doing the, the motion that he needs to to get the point across. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is great that that you that, that's very present in that particular shot you're talking about, but throughout cops is, you know, I think for a long time he was not we didn't really understand him certainly in his time as a filmmaker. Like you think of him as just being like the comedian or, you know, the guy who just sort of put the camera where, you know, it would capture the bit he's doing. But the the. The, de- the degree to which these films are composed, the, 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 the careful quality of those compositions, the way that it's framed to draw attention to the gag, uh, but not to overcomplicate it. Um, and, and to really, he's kind of always doing surprising things with movement within that frame. And I think a lot of that is his stage background coming through. Absolutely. But I think one of the things that made him so stand out was what you mentioned before about the way he's playing to camera, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like out of all of the guys, you know, all of those, mm-hmm. that sort of early things, like he was the guy who could play to camera. Yep. I mean, just in a way that was just impossible to ignore, you know, yep. and, and even when it's doesn't necessarily, even when he's not like dead in, you know, I, I, there's some there's some interaction between him and the audience just that just isn't there for anybody else. Yeah. That it thing, that thing that nobody can explain, you know, right. like Je ne sais quoi. somehow <laughs> like he, yeah. he's got it. Yeah, no, it's a perfect short. And also but also has one of the bleaker um, endings that I've <laughs> that I've ever seen in Never a film comedy from any era. He he has a little bit of a dark sense of humor there's a few <laughs> other ones that end with tombstones of his yes yeah, uh, it's, it's, yeah, a, it's he, a motif if you will he's not afraid to make that joke that's yes. for certain i think it also happens with college yes where yeah he has his sweetheart and they go through the stages of you know their lives together and then the mm-hmm. very end is well the end two headstones <laughs> <laughs> and so this yeah. one is the end written on a ten stone. <laughs> yes. just, just i believe one. Just one, so I yeah, guess just Colin... one on this one. Yeah, the, the sweetheart com- didn't follow him to the grave. <laughs> Correct. The, the comparatively happier ending, I guess, goes to uh, goes to yeah. college because uh, at least he doesn't die alone. Uh, Monica, what what is the next movie on your top five for nineteen twenty two? The next movie on my list is a Swedish film by the name of Haxan, which is just this very strange trip into medieval history, looking at medieval paintings and interpreting what the devil does and looks like and influences people. 
And it's very, it is very strange. It is very out there, but it's also very nightmarish. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it gets a, it's a, the, the beginning is a little slow. I will warn people who want to pull it up on YouTube right now and watch it. Um, but then it gets really, really weird. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sure is. But yeah, gorgeous. This, it's, it's a really, I saw it for the first time a couple of years ago when the Criterion Blu-ray came out and I was just really stunned by how far ahead of its time it is. Um, just in terms of this is sort of a, you know, a, it's a fictionalized documentary, you know, narrative elements, but documentary um, legitimacy at a, at a moment in film history, whereas we will discuss in a, in a minute or two, um, the, the language and the idea of documentary cinema was not yet established. But it's fascinating the way that even that, especially from a contemporary point of view, that it works on that level that you like that, that it has that strange legitimacy that we sort of grant um, even the, the fictionalized documentary. This this the way that they're able to sort of graft this these very this, this supernatural ideas into a form that is that feels a little more straightforward, I think, is feels really ahead of its time. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they were exploring a topic that, by all accounts, didn't exist in film. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting how they bring in sort of you could use you could say that it's archival uh, use of medieval paintings. And there's even uh, a segment that's almost like some sort of a mechanical uh, staging of like what hell looks like, what their mm-hmm. image of hell looks like with like fog coming up and these little dioramas moving up and down. That's very, that looks straight out of like a George Millier's sort of short film. But they were using those techniques back then in order to interpret, you know, what not just Dante's Inferno looked like, but what other people's interpretations of hell looked like. And then there's the live action sequences where there is, you know, multiple. um, exposures and things like that to give, you know, even more dreamlike interpretations of, you know, people getting tempted by the devil or how the devil seeps into everyday life and, um, you know, the horrifying interpretation of what the devil looks like and how he just shows up as a, you know, big painted naked man with horns, you know, that became, that became an interpretation for film for decades to come. Yes. And you could trace it back to that film. Yeah, no, the, the the imagery in this thing is sort of still shocking and astonishing. Um, and I think has that extra advantage of because of what they're trying to do, because of the sort of the, the nonfiction-y framework that they're putting on it, where the age of the movie now makes those images, to me, creepier because they they feel aged now. They feel like genuine archival stuff. Um, it doesn't look faked in you know any more than than any other sort of narrative movie we're looking at from this period yeah a little bit of a nice cursed film for the for the spooky holidays <laughs> yes yes exactly i used to work for uh mazels for albert mazels for a while and one of the last movies that he was working on that he never actually finished as far as i know was about the idea of blood libel and oh, you know wow. sort of anti-semitism in europe and the history of this and he showed me the shot one time of a wedding where it's this, you know, it's in this massive like medieval church 
and you know it's beautiful it's a huge lots of people brides baba and they're and they're coming down you know the aisle and it's just this amazing shot and then he pans up and there's an enormous tapestry of a bunch of Jewish people around a cauldron full of Christian babies, boiling Christian babies. Oh, my babies. God. And the first time I saw this movie, yeah, and it's, like, there. It's, like, decorating the fucking church, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. And and he shot this on a PD-150. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't in the 1600s, you know? And, and I, saw, I saw this movie around the same time that I had first seen that shot and, like, talked to him about what he was developing. And so they've always been intimately connected, uh, you know, to me, and and the idea that this movie is um sort of plays on that is just I can never get out of my head, and, and it, it, it's crazy. It makes it better. Yeah, creepy, terrifying um uh, movie that I think really genuinely like there gets better with age. Like I feel like the further we get from this one, the more it will seem like the genuine article, just like someone captured all of this shit and put it into a creepy ass documentary. Um. Monica, what is then, uh, as I as I mentioned, we want to talk a little bit more about the beginning of nonfiction. What is the number three film on your top five list? The next film on my list is Nanook of the North, which was uh-huh. one of the first nonfiction films that took cameras to northern Canada and filmed uh, a group of indigenous, an indigenous family living out in the ice flows um, mm-hmm. in that area. And, you know, it's both an ethnography, but a narrative film. You follow this family struggles. It also introduces people to a region that most of them have never even known existed into a group of people they probably never even thought of. So it's it's interesting because I know the history of the film itself has a bit of... Mm -hmm you know, mixed feelings about it, especially where there's, you know, some paternalistic um, intertitles and the way that it's described is very much of the time. Mm -hmm. um, Which makes it othering little, little bit, little bit, little bit. But on the same token, it's a really fascinating piece to watch over a hundred years later i mean one of the first i watched that actually with my boyfriend and the one of the first things that he said was well i don't think we're ever going to see northern canada look this icy again (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, it was like well yeah it it captured a moment in time yeah yeah Yeah. in a way people couldn't before yeah robert flaherty's the director here and you know what was this is one i saw um uh, I want to say in my twenties, um, uh, when I was preparing for my very brief stint in film school, and uh, but it is like it, it, it's an astonishing movie because you really are like there are not a lot of films where you can watch and say, "Wow, I'm watching someone create the language like in front of me." Like, um, and you know, a lot of the ones where you do say that, it's like you have to like, I don't want to watch fucking birth of a nation, but I would, I enjoyed watching this, but you really are. You're like, this is the choices that he's making in terms of how, of the visual uh, components of how things are being cut together um, of the presentation. Like this is really like establishing a way of making movies. Um, and also, like you say, doing it in a really sort of narratively compelling way. There's been a fair amount of writing about how much of it was genuine and how much of it was staged. And so, you know, and that's 
that's a whole other podcast to have that that entire conversation were to break that down and the intricacies of it but I mean, this is like this. Oh, this is how you make a documentary feature. This is what a documentary looks like. Um, was this one that you saw like sort of in that initial, you know, high school burst of, of silent movie interest or when you came to later? Uh, it was definitely one that I came to later. I think I mostly stuck with narrative film mm -hmm. uh, coming up in the ranks. And then documentary was something that I enjoyed and I watched a lot of but never really mm -hmm. sat and gave it the same amount of attention to until I seen a certain amount of documentaries and then I could start formulating opinions on well this one was better than that one and that one was stronger for this reason and then this mm -hmm. one was something you know that I saw on TCM at some point that introduced me to it and you know, I remember it then. I rewatched it now, and it's still very effective. It's still, you know, the, a tale of survival. You're rooting for this yeah. family, and you're still invested in, you know, their struggle, and in yeah. the same sort of human way that anyone would be, uh, you know, given this perspective. Yeah, yeah. No, the the survival story is a is a good a good sturdy standby in uh, in fiction and nonfiction. Turns out. Um, uh, Mike, as as the one amongst us who has made documentaries, um, where do where do you land on Nanook? This was the first movie that my wife ever showed me, um, oh. so I have a sort. Of, she did a film minor, and okay. so she saw this movie as part of her film minor. And when she heard mm -hmm. I'd never seen it, she was like, "What? You make documentaries? Like, what's the matter with you? Watch this, <laughs> you know, sort of founding document, you know." So I have sort of personal, yeah, uh, warmth. Uh, yeah. for, for for this movie, which is not the right word for a movie yeah, that takes lot, place lot in of frozen north for but, for a very cold movie. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think I mean we're still we're still having conversations about representation and what it means for you know sort of who who can tell what stories credibly right. and stuff like that. You know, and right. all of that stuff is real. Um, yeah. My favorite story from this movie is you know during the walrus hunt, supposedly Flaherty was closest to the gun and the, all the guys kept saying shoot the fucking walrus and he didn't he wouldn't pick up the gun and so eventually somebody got a spear and stabbed the walrus the way we see it in the movie and Flaherty did that on purpose because they had guns but that wasn't what he was there to film he wasn't there to right. film them with guns right so right. it's this sort of mixed bag where it's like okay it's not necessarily like you know a, a, a moment to moment you know documentary of their current situation but also that's they didn't kill that wall like that shit wasn't fake bro they really got a stick and killed that walrus like you know <laughs> they sure did they really skinned those seals <laughs> yeah. I, right i mean like and that was really how that stuff was done and there's a value now you know 100 years later and i think have you ever seen any, any of the ghost dance movies you ever no. heard about the ghost dance you know this was sort of a, a a native american revivalist thing that was happening you know after the civil war and and mm -hmm. um and the ghost dance there's lots of different sort of ways to talk about it but it was you know sort of to bring back ancestors and so on and so forth and so there are a handful of very short films of people actually doing the ghost dance and those things weren't filmed by sioux filmmakers but right. they are now the only versions we have to be right. able to see you do you see what i mean so like yeah there is value there even if we want to yeah. sort of like you know try to parse it i saw a thing about when everybody's getting out of the canoe 
sort of that this was like making fun of them, like making sort of a clown car thing out of it. And it's like, no, dude, that is an amazingly innovative way to move your family around a fucking ice flow. That's incredible, dude. And I don't think filming that is making fun of them. Right. You know, so it's a good conversation to have. It's important to have. But I am not dismissive of it at all. I like the movie for personal and professional reasons. And I was glad to see it on the list, even though it means I can't put it as my favorite. (laughs) all right monica what then is the fourth film on our list i would say probably the best known of of the movies on your list for 1922 i would have to agree because it is nosferatu which is that's right one of those interpretations of dracula that has stuck with movie generations for Mm -hmm. decades and decades Mm mm-hmm this this fucking movie still rips. It is still it's so creepy. So creepy. It is oh, yeah. so fucking scary. It is like Max Shrek is horrifying. I do not <laughs> like the the. It, I think I really think it's a value. To, uh, you know, it's it's a testament to the performance that like you know in whatever it was ninety nine or two thousand that they made a movie about how Max Shrek was an actual vampire like this fictionalized <laughs> fictionalized account shadow of the vampire but like you watch this movie you're like no he could that could be that could he maybe was really eating rats on the set that tracks Um, (laughs) when did you when did you first see this this movie and what was sort of its initial impression on you i i don't know that i saw this movie until i was in high school and i think Mm. maybe about that time i'd actually been introduced to Nosferatu but I mean I saw the image in popular culture in commercials you know Mm -hmm. it it showed up even if I'd Mm -hmm. never seen the movie in its entirety I think I might have actually seen it in Spongebob Squarepants before (laughs) I actually saw the full movie because there is an early episode where Nosferatu you know scares them and he turns wow. on the lights and off and on and I, that's the scary like reveal <laughs> yeah. it's Nosferatu oh yeah. Nosferatu and yeah. then <laughs> and then of course to come to find out there's actually a full scary movie of this dude uh, mm-hmm. so it was kind of a delight because it yeah. is one of those timeless scary movies um, and I think you know we were talking about earlier about the language of nonfiction film being developed mm-hmm. here we have the language of horror kind of being oh, developed big time. and oh, I mean yeah. th- it, that had, you know, kind of been going on for a while. But here we really see, you know, using exposure as a like hit the moment where he melts into the sun is still something that's, you know, burned into my memory because that blew my mind as a kid mm-hmm. or, you know, as a high school kid. Um, mm-hmm. How did they make that happen? Did he like what? He just disintegrated, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then of course, like, yeah, the performance is truly scary. The way that he like stiffens his body in such a way but still has such long arms to reach people. Like, you do not want to face that creature in a dark alley. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it really haunts you in the back of your head. Yeah. Yeah. And Murnau's use of light and shadow, I mean, you know, it's it's an obvious statement to make, you know, to, to talk about German expressionism and so forth. But I mean, like, I think... The, the that sort of famous image of just the sh- the shadow of his bald head and those those hunched shoulders just coming into that doorway is like oh it's that's indelible that's just like that is that's what darkness and light in a horror movie can do um it's astonishing 
yeah, yeah. It's it's a, a a great great movie. And but again, you know, we'll talk. We'll get into this a little more when we get into some of the lightning round and awards and box office. But you know, this um, so many of these movies were lost for so long. Um, and this one, I, from what I understand was considered lost for quite some time because it, they had had to pull it from circulation because the Stoker, um, the Bram Stoker estate and family had like, you know, had, had sued them for plagiarism. And so for a long time it, it had just disappeared. And then luckily somewhere, somehow someone had saved a copy of it. And now, you know, we have this, this, uh, this classic, but it's, it's, it still holds up. And the number of the, the ease with which you can still like in the spooky season, which we are approaching, you know, go see like revival screenings of this where somebody, you know, they, somebody brings in like a DJ to do like a, you know, a terror techno score or whatever. Like the movie still packs a real punch. Yeah, or a good old-fashioned organ player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we like that, too. Mm-hmm. We like that, too, a lot. They, um, they, they they did totally rip off that Stoker's IP, though. I mean, Oh, they totally, oh, well, absolutely. 100% absolutely. robbed that shit. Robbed oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No denying. No. <laughs> At least However, they did something still really good. It, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. If you want, like, a killer double feature for your October, uh, last week we talked about uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula with Christy. Let's... Pair these two up and you got a you got a nice night in. Um, all right, that brings us to the the end of the list, the the alphabetical five faves of uh of the year. So what is the final film on your top five for 1922? The last film I'm going to yeah. put on our list is The Toll of the Sea, which is an anime wand vehicle. And yeah. my goodness, it's one of the first Technicolor films ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have this really pretty pastel melodrama, kind of a ripoff slash riff on Madame Butterfly, mm. but um, it's Anna Mae Wong in a yeah. you know the, a starring role that she was so often denied in this industry. I mean, she just looks gorgeous, and she is acting yeah. the hell out of heartbreaking yes. story. Like, what yeah. a thing to get to act. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it's only about an hour. I mean, it's all yeah. hers. It's all her yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, this 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 was my only first time watch on this list. Um, and so thank you, because it is. It's it, I mean, first of all, the, this two color Technicolor process um, it is so specific and so evocative um, for, you know, if you're not familiar with it, the, the the easiest way to describe it is like it's what Scorsese's doing at the beginning of The Aviator. Like, they you know, that they to, to put it in that proper time period, they aped digitally the 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 two color technicolor process. But, yeah, it's you know, it's it's a, a heart wrenching story of you know um this american seaman who uh, that's that's such a bad word to use let me try it again an american sailor um and his seaman because he you know he he marries this <laughs> chinese girl who anime wong plays um gets her pregnant deserts her and uh and it's what happens after that um it is it is a melodrama but something about uh, the direction was a, a filmmaker I'm not familiar with named Chester M. Franklin. Um, and uh, something about 
the way that he shoots this, the proximity of the camera, the acting is extremely understated for a 1922 melodrama, I found. Um, and she's doing such subtle things and is so is so camera savvy that when it comes to the conclusion, it really does. It's It sort of breaks you. I think for all of the films, we can say one of the beautiful things about revisiting this time in film history is that, you know, before the 1930s and when sound came into the picture, they used the camera differently. Things were placed differently. The camera moved differently. People, actors blocked and performed to it differently in a way that kind of got stifled when you had to stand close to a mic. And it took a while before the technology got back to where the camera movement was at the end of the 1920s. So here we get to see the advent of Technicolor, nonfiction filmmaking, supernatural, fantasy stuff, uh, comedy moving at a breakneck speed. And that was just, you know, really incredible that we got all the work that we did at this time. No, you're right. There's a real, there's a real energy and momentum uh, to the filmmaking, I think in all five of these, that that is really, that that's sort of astonishing, especially if if you're a person who tends to think of movies from this period as being very sort of staid and solemn and slow. Uh, these movies all move, and and as you mentioned, uh, this one is under an hour, but it is it's a full it's a full emotional meal. Um, and also, you know, thanks to uh, uh, copyrights being what they are, pretty much all of these are movies that you can go watch on YouTube. Like we'll embed all of them uh, in the in the posts and so on. But but this is this is a period that's that's waiting to be discovered. So uh, so Monica, thank you for 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 spotlighting this year. Thank you for this excellent top five. Uh, let's find out what movies were winning trophies and making money in 1922. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out. With me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. The record companies only give me lots of money. None of them are as good as Toll of the Sea, dude. Let's just wrap it up here. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> <laughs> the Oscars did not yet exist in 1922. This is our first pre Oscar show, so. Yes. You don't have to listen to me whinge on about the Oscars. <laughs> Let's That's just enjoy nice. like once upon a time, you know, once upon a time, there were no Oscars. There were no Oscar pundits. There were no award season. <laughs> award season. <laughs> there were no fall festivals to to, to pimp your wares. Yeah. Um, uh, how do we know what what anyone even liked in 1922, Mike? Well, the Film Daily Yearbook got a 10 best list from several of the prominent critics of the day and crunched those numbers to compile a best films of 1922 list. Okay. Well, I'm ready. Oliver Twist, Jackie Coogan in the title role, long thought lost until a print serviced in Yugoslavia in 1973. I love a story like that. I love when some shit turns up in a closet somewhere. Oh, it makes me so happy. Robin Hood, written, produced, and directed by Douglas Fairbanks. Yes. Have you seen this one, Monica? I have. I believe TCM has shown up before. I That sounds right. How is it? I mean, it's Douglas Fairbanks. If I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> wait. Now yeah. I'm wondering if I'm conflating that or his Zorro. Not a Zorro. It's another one of his movies. Either way, it's a lot of posing. It's another yes. short book. Yeah, it's a lot of him. It's a lot yeah. of close-ups to him. But of I course. mean... 
you could totally see the language of action hero in all of his mm-hmm. movies. I know the one that I've seen the most of his is, uh, I think, Thief of Baghdad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. one I've studied of his. That I mean, that's also a lot of fun. Number eight, an interesting contraction. I'm going to guess that you pronounce this tolerable, David. Like yes. a contraction of tolerable? I it's guess. It's not tollable, right? It doesn't mean we can no. charge him a fee? No, no, no. No, it does not. Yeah. I've not seen no tolerable, David. Nope, me neither. All right. Number seven, Smiling Through, starring Buster Keaton's sister-in-law, Norma Talmadge, and the ageless Harrison Ford. No, oh, that's a different Harrison no, Ford. Different. Guy. A di- different guy. Different yep. guy. He was not fronting pictures in 22. He was He was not a vampire that we know no. of. <laughs> no, he was of. still selling weed back then, right? <laughs> oh, Number six, Nanak of the North, well-deserved. Yay. Yep. Number yep. five, When Knighthood Was in Flower. A Marion ah. Davies movie, which not only Good. survived, but just got a new Blu-ray with a score by Ben Modell. Hey! Oh, hey! Ben Modell. Big we fan. Like Mr. Modell's work. Yes, we do. Yes. yes, indeed. Number four, Prisoner of Zenda with Roman Navarro. Do you? Mm. Have familiar. you seen this? I've not seen this one. I don't know that I have, but Roman Navarro is a big, you know, first uh, in film history, too. Number three, Blood and Sand, Valentino. Hey. Ah, wait, thoughts on Blood and Sand, Monica? Um, I'm more of a four, four horsemen of the apocalypse girly. Uh, <laughs> nice. Blood and Sand is it's fine, but it's very kind of more melodramatic. And mm-hmm. I liked the smoldering version of uh, Valentino in Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And uh, everyone apparently, in the apparently, ninth- yeah. So did America. Apparently, so yeah. so did a lot of people who took up tango after <laughs> after that movie. That was the tango craze in the twenties. Yeah. Wow. Number two, Grandma's Boy with Harold Lloyd. I like Harold Lloyd. I like yep. Grandma's Boy. This Same. Is a good one. This is a good one. But this is it does underscore the thing that you always hear that like, no, actually, Harold Lloyd of the three, he may be the one we rank third now, but he was the one who was like most consistently the moneymaker. Mm. Um, he's he, he always outgrossed Buster and uh, did as well as Chaplin and also like did not take, you know, three years to make a movie the way that, that no, Chaplin he did not. got into <laughs> by the 20s. He yeah, was cranking him out one or two a year. Yeah. Mm hmm. And number one, Orphans of the Storm, D.W. Griffith, starring both Lillian and Dorothy Gish. Ah, I've I've not seen Orphans of the Storm. Have you, Monica? I'm trying to remember. No, that's way. I think it's it's a way down east. I've yeah, seen one yeah. of the other Gish movies where one of yeah. them is like flowing down a waterfall, <laughs> potentially about to fall over. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard uh, to be a course. Griffith completist. There's like a lot of them. They're sure air. They're sure. Sure. And like some of them are varying quality. Some of them. Mm -hmm. Do you really want to finish that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And some of them are just racist as shit. So yeah, that too. Uh, Domestic box office top 10 is actually only nine of them. This it was very hard to make this list. This was a long time ago. Yes. It was literally yeah. over a hundred years ago. Yes. Well, All and right. I think yeah. uh, if I could speak on the theatrical distribution side, it was more set up like a picture road show. Like they would play yes. the the print would travel down certain mm. routes, and then you know, as we saw, so they frozen. T- it would end up yes. at the end of the route, and studios didn't want to pay for the return shipment back, so they would just get dumped. 
And that's why we have so many lost yep. films of the silent era. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Including some of these, even though they were huge mm-hmm. money makers. Including m- m- most of these, many of wow. these. I Quite mean, a few. you know, that's that's some good context for this list, actually. <laughs> yeah. Number nine, A Dangerous Adventure. It was a serial directed by Sam and Jack L. Warner. Lost. Warner Brothers. The, yes. the Warner Brothers directing serials in the in the early uh, 1920s. Yeah, Lost film. Number eight, Your Best Friend. Lost. Mm-hmm. Well. Number seven, Beautiful and the Damned. Lost. Mm-hmm. I mean. See, the thing is, usually when we do the top ten, we ask the guests for their thoughts on each of the movies, and it's like, who knows? <laughs> Maybe it was great. We'll we may see know. one day in some closet or yeah. buried in uh, the Yukon Territory. Yes. <laughs> There we go. Now we're getting somewhere. It's in that, that it's, it's uh, uh, Nanook stuffed it in his canoe. Number six, <laughs> Heroes of the Street, which is a surviving film. Oh, that I've, oh. Seen. I've not seen, not seen that either. Nope. Number five is Lost Ragdust to Riches. Mm-hmm. Number four, Smiling Through. We have yep. that one. Okay. All right. Good. 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 Number three, Grandma's Boy. Yay. Which, Yay. Still with us. Number two, Blood and Sand. Yay. So sewed its way to number two. Yep. Yep. And number one was Robin Hood, two and a half million dollars. That's a lot of fucking nickels, bro. <laughs> that is. That is. We that'd be a pretty anemic opening weekend these days, but in nineteen twenty two, two point five million dollars was a fucking blockbuster, baby. I was gonna say adjust that for inflation though. <laughs> Someone wanna crunch those numbers. Okay, so that's yeah, that's a forty two point five million dollar gross. Uh in uh in- I would say that's pretty healthy in today's money too. <laughs> pretty Pretty healthy, respectable. <laughs> a lot of movies do not pull forty-two point five million these days. Library of Congress has a lost films list. If you're interested in such a thing, the National Film Preservation Board. Nice. Uh, we'll yep. throw a link up there, um, and hopefully, uh, we will see more and more of those names get crossed off that list hopefully as we get so. uh, clean Blu-rays. All right. Thank you for the uh, for the top ten, top nine, Mike. Monica, you ready to do a lightning round? Let's go. All right, let's just see how we do. This is, I've never, Monica, I've never had a shorter starter <laughs> list for a lightning round because so few survived. Sure. Like, yeah. this is, this is, very and then this short. is almost so like a pop quiz of how much I remember from watching TCM. Yes. It, by the way, their silent movie Sundays start at midnight. Yeah. So, for, for those of yeah. us who have school or work the next day, just mm-hmm. chaos. Mm-hmm. But we do it <laughs> for yes, the love indeed. of it. Yes, indeed. All right. Mike's going to put five minutes on the clock. We'll see if we need them all. And uh, if you've seen it and have something to say on it, do. If you haven't, uh, just pass. And here we go. Tess of the Storm Country. I've seen it. It is, um, oh, gosh, Mary Pickford in a big old Mm -hmm. drama where she's still playing a kid in, I believe, her like late 20s or 30s. God bless. Uh, She was going all for it. (laughs) She did it for years. (laughs) She sure did. She sure did. Um, Eric von Stroheim's Foolish Wives. No, this is actually one on uh, my to watch list. I I really want to see this on the big screen, I think. Gotcha. I just really wanted to say Eric von Stroheim's name. Um, we had another Harold Lloyd feature in 1922, speaking to the earlier point of him being the prolific uh, of the silent clowns. Dr. Jack. Have you seen Dr. Jack? 
I feel like this was one of those that were included on like one of the one of his Blu-rays or something like that. So mm-hmm. I have seen it, but I, I cannot tell you how many years ago it was. Chaplin's final two-reeler, Payday, was released in 1922. I remember liking that a lot more when I was in high school. I think that was him with the puppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Oh, God, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. You know who put out a bunch of movies in 1922, Monica, was our man Buster Keaton. And so here are some of those. The Pale Face. Yes. Uh, no, just really good, really funny. Also very problematic. Uh, oh, sure Yep. Is. Uh, the name tells you everything. You have to go you go, go in uh, with your, with that in mind. Yes. My wife's relations. Kind of feels like a precursor to my favorite Buster Keaton film, Our Hospitality. That's your f- interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and and uh, an out of the box favorite. I like it as well. Uh, the Blacksmith was released in 1922. Yeah, I I do remember that one. Not as fondly, but I know he does some really incredible physical comedy. I think because, namesake uh, blacksmith. He's working with an anvil. Yes, yes. As a, a comic prop. prop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A very good one. Uh, perhaps in response to the popularity of Nanook of the North, Mr. Keaton also released The Frozen North in 1922. Absolutely. He was very much in uh, responding to big movies of the time because he also did The Three Ages in response to Intolerance. Yes, that's a good one. The Electric House from Mr. Keaton. I love The Electric House. That is just one end to the other gags and props and setups. And it's all very incredible to watch. Uh, and the final Buster Keaton short of 22 was Daydreams. I don't know that I remember that much. Uh, I think he does really interesting things with uh, film exposure. And it kind of feels like he does that with uh, Sherlock Jr. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Working, working some of that stuff yeah. early on. Um, so Rudolph Valentino also was in The Young Raja in 1922, which was lost but reassembled by TCM in 2005. Yes, I did see the reassembly, um, but it's one of those that is like, it's not quite fully reassembled. There's still things missing from it. So you don't get the full mm. effect, but it is, I mean, it's Valentino, you know, mugging to the camera as as sultry <laughs> as he can in, you know, costume regalia. Gotcha. Uh, John Barrymore as Sherlock Holmes. I have. I'm actually a big Sherlock Holmes fan, uh, so I I have seen various multiple iterations of Sherlock Holmes, including this one. How uh, is it? It's it's a much more serious. If I, if I remember correctly, this was also a project that I did more when I was younger. Um, but yeah, he takes a very stoic approach to to Sherlock Holmes. I I think I'm closer to the Basil Rathbone interpretation, who has a little I bit agree. more. I mean, he's serious, but he has some fun with it. Yes, yes, he does. And finally, Will Rogers in The Headless Horseman. I actually haven't seen, I haven't seen a lot of Will Rogers. No, me neither. Yeah, me neither. I should. Um, okay, well then let me try this one. F.W. Murnau's Phantom was released. <gasps> oh, I love Murnau, so I, I should track this down. Um, okay, last one. Fritz Long's Dr. Mabus the Gambler. <laughs> Was this the one with uh, Peter Lorre or before or a different make of it? Or am I? Oh, no, this was before. I'm thinking M. 
That's what I was oh, yeah, conflating yeah. that with. Uh, I th- I definitely seen this on TCM, but it was back when I was in high school, so it's been a few years. Um, but I mean, <laughs> it's also visually stunning. It's Fritz Long. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I a lot of German expressionism. I love mm-hmm. to just watch, mm-hmm. even if. Side note, this is a complete random aside, but I used to have to watch a lot of those silent movie Sundays completely on silent because I would sneak out of my bedroom to watch it in the TV room and I couldn't wake up my parents. So I just watched them in silence. No accompaniment, no piano, no musical score, no nothing. Just just I was there for the images. I was there for the story. Wow. Wow. And that's how you Um, become Monica Castillo. And that's that's what's wrong with me. <laughs> that's my villain origin story. <laughs> Beautiful. Monica, excellent, excellent lightning round. Thank you so much. Now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. Monica, where can people read your work and or follow you on social media? I am, I should be posting more probably, but I am available (laughs) on uh, the website formerly known as Twitter. I'm on Instagram Uh and Blue Sky as MCasti Movies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. And you can also follow my Patreon uh, under the same name. And I'm posting independent stuff there in addition to things that I'm writing for other publications like RogerEber.com. I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterbox, where you can find under my list the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can the people follow you? I am uh, 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 on Substack at a very good year, where I write way more articles about documentaries than Jason actually ever asked me to, <laughs> because I really love this shit. So check us out on Substack. Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1922? I like Manslaughter. Cecil B. DeMille. I never actually saw uh, the 2022 Babylon, but I'm pretty sure it's about the filming of this movie. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those early, you know, I mean, we've talked about this with, with those guys, with Griffith and DeMille and some of those guys before, where it's like, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to spend an hour watching debauchery, and mm-hmm. then at the end, we're going to get some finger wagging, but we're right. really here to watch the debauchery, you know? Right. And, and Manslaughter, to me, is sort of the best version of that, where it's this lady who's just impossibly rich, I don't know how she's so rich, but she's throwing Babylon-sized parties, and you know, she gets, she's like, gets pulled over by a cop at one point, and just drops a bracelet on the ground, and he's like, did you drop this? And she's like, no, must belong to you. And then she just drives away. I mean, it's like, it's complete and utter debauchery and insanity. And of course, at the end, you know, there's some finger-wagging, but in this particular movie, she gets finger-wagged by a DA instead of, like, it's it doesn't have the sort of, like, overtly Christian overtones of a lot of the other sort of versions of this it mm-hmm. is more of sort of a, a, a straight up party movie you know and it's it's pre-code but there's you know there's definitely finger wagging it's just such a big huge crazy movie yeah. it's really sort of my favorite version of his movies because it's all the good shit without any of the annoying stuff yeah <laughs> that manslaughter there you go. How about you, buddy? Um, you know, we mentioned it before, but actually I think my favorite is I can't go I can't say cops because it's in the top five, but like uh my wife's relations 
is one of my very favorite Buster two wheelers because you don't think of him as being a terribly personal artist. Um, but one of the wonderful moments in the, the, the fantastic, uh, Brownlow and Gill documentary about him, Buster Keaton, a hard act to follow, is that they point out that he made my wife's relations like not long after he married into the Talmadge family, which was like several sisters. And then they like cut to like these scenes of him being like browbeaten by his wife's brothers. He changed the sexes <laughs> of the in-laws, but it's basically all a movie about like marrying into a family and like getting in way over your head. Um, and like I said, he's just, he's not someone we think of as, you know, as putting a lot of autobiography into his stuff, but there is a case to be made that it's there. And so there's a little bit of an extra, a little bit of extra zing to that particular Your one. wife has a lot of siblings. Is there um, any, uh, any, I, uh, any, uh, pity your stomachs? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> has this become a semi-autobiographical experience for you as well? <laughs> I have nothing to add to this. Uh, thank you again, Monica. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. Heart sweet and clear. It was a very good year.